Welcome to Spoken Earth. I'm Adam Weymouth, and this is the first of a new series from Lacuna magazine, looking at some of the deeper ideas and philosophies behind the environmental movement. I've been involved in one way or another in both activism and writing about the environment for the best part of 15 years now. But it's not until recently I've noticed that there were big gaps in my knowledge of what ideas underpin the causes that we're fighting for. As I worked on a book last year, I felt that I was struggling to invent ideas from scratch not aware of my history, and I felt sure that there must be people who had done it much better and much more extensively before me. Well, there are, and this podcast is my journey to meet some of them and to learn from them. There's no shortage of material out there that will give you the science and the sociology behind environmental campaigns, no shortage of polemic and no shortage of debate. But in the spirit of lacuna, I want this to fill a different space, a place for thinkers about the environment, many of whom are activists in their own right, to flesh out their ideas and discuss them. Even calling it the environment is tricky because these conversations will range over everything from economics to anthropology, human rights to history. But the environment is what holds all of them together, just like it holds everything together. This is Spoken Earth. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm speaking with the anthropologist Hugh Brodie. A writer, professor and filmmaker, he's also played leading roles in the land rights cases for several Indigenous peoples. He has worked extensively in northern Canada and the High Arctic, as well as with the Bushmen of the Kalahari in Namibia. I think a great mistake that's often made when talking about Indigenous peoples is to dichotomise the rational and the non-rational. We are the rational, they are the non-rational. In fact, the the real human achievement is to combine the two. So you bring all your knowledge to bear in your dream. Hugh Brody's book, The Other Side of Eden, shaped a lot of the thinking behind my own journeys to the Arctic and my canoe trip across Canada and Alaska a couple of summers ago. The book hinges on a distinction he makes between hunter-gatherers and farmers, in which he sees two very distinct and different ways of being in the world. Having lived in the Arctic for many years and learnt the languages there, and having spent many weeks at a time on journeys out on the ice, he's extremely well placed to act as a conduit between the hunter-gatherer world and our own. Unpicking some core values at the centre of who we are, how we think about land, about language, about gods, about family, about community. He shows how what we believe to be universal truths in fact relate specifically to the farmer's way of being in the world. The farmer's way is one that seeks to change the land that they live on, he says, and expand into new territories. But there is another way of thinking. Hunter-gatherers don't see themselves as exiles from Eden. Instead, they see the land where they live as paradise, as their only possible home, and that their life is about maintaining that land, not trying to change it. There is a lot we can learn from that way of thought, he says, and from a way of life that over the past few decades has been eradicated at an ever-increasing rate. The last strongholds of the hunter-gatherer are, to our minds, some of the most inhospitable places on the planet. The Arctic, the deserts, the boreal forest. But indeed, that's the only reason that the farmers have left them be. Hugh has made much of his life in these places, and the insights that he has gained are essential. I met up with Hugh at his home in North London in February. It was the warmest winter day ever recorded in the UK. So the other other side of Eden starts with your trip to... Pond in the, in 1971, is that 71 correct? 71 I went there for yeah. the first time, yeah. When you were quite young, in your 20s? The 20s, 27, 28. Okay. Yeah. Not that young. Yeah, but as a sort of... I know that, that was the first time I went to Alaska as well in kind of 26, 27, yes. and I'm just reading the new Barry Lopez at the moment, and that was the first time that he went to the... I, a lot of people that I met in Alaska yeah. seemed to be drawn end. in as, as young men. Yes. Was that kind of part of your original pull as well, do you think? Is just that sort of lure of the I north? think I went to the Arctic as a result of reading, not as a result of anything very much to do with my everyday life or ideas of adventure at all. I didn't really have a sense that what I wanted to do was head out on some kind of adventure. But I did read a lot about culture change and found this large literature from the, I guess, from the 50s, American mostly, that looked at culture change in the North 
and I read about the rapid rate at which Eskimo peoples, northern peoples, were being transformed by colonial administrative frontiers. And I thought it would be really fascinating to look at that, that rapid change, to go to a place where the encounter between our kind of world and another kind of world is very intense and very fast moving. So that was what excited me. And then the more I read about this particular frontier, or the frontier of North Americans and the Inuit of the Arctic, the more I thought I really want to go into the Inuit world. And a lot of what you write about, the, the main distinction in the other side of Eden at least, is about these two different ways of looking at the world, mm. what you call the, the, the farmer way of looking at the world, which you say encompasses everything from the kind of the peasant farmer to the 21st century executive, that, yeah. that sort of colonial mentality. And then this other very different way of looking at the world, yeah. the, the hunter-gatherer mentality. Yeah. Did yes. that feel immediately apparent? When, when, yes, when, I was when, a, when you... in a way it was apparent probably from the very beginning and even within my responses to the reading. Uh, because I'd been working in the west of Ireland. Mm -hmm. I'd spent quite a long time living and writing about peasant life in small villages in Connemara and County Cork. And I'd been immersed, therefore, in the agricultural, in an agricultural paradigm, small families making a living with some difficulty by doing battle with their environment. I mean, my, uh, and what I realised when I started to read about the North was that the Irish farmer has to change the environment, has to build walls, has to get the stones out of the wall, has to get earth onto the ground, has to haul seaweed from the beach into their potato gardens to create a topsoil, has to get rid of trees. And then when they planted the garden, they have to get rid of the plants they don't want, the weeds, the things they call weeds. So this engagement with the land of the peasantry, I realised, was an engagement that is highly combative and very controlling. And by contrast, people living in the Arctic, I think I realised before I even went there, uh, it had no such mm. battles on their hands. They had a different kind of struggle to make a living. But it wasn't a struggle that centred on transforming or controlling. So that distinction was lurking around in my head when I first went to the North. Once I got there, I realised this is, this is a hugely important uh, distinction and that to understand the human condition I think that's the place to go, to look at what it means to be a farmer as somebody and, and, to, be, and to be therefore to be somebody who is, takes the land and makes it into something else. So farmers clear the forest to make fields, drain the swamps to make fields, plant their crops they bring with them, graze the animals they brought with them. Whereas the hunter-gatherers are in a landscape which they need to stay the same. So for their system to work, they have to know how it works, for what it is, not for what they have made it or for how they can transform it, mm -hmm. but they have to know it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's a completely different way of being on the land. It's also, I think, a very different way of being a human being. Yeah. And then the other side of that, island potato story is the blight and the famine and when the land gets to a point where it can no longer That's right. support the people then if they're it goes forced wrong. into exile. If it goes wrong mm. if the then it's a crisis because mm. you have dense populations. Agricultural people want to have lots of children. They, they tend to produce very large families. They need a lot of labour. They're quite happy to have children go and live elsewhere. They're constantly exporting children, as it were, to other parts of the world, hence the colonial nature of the agricultural system. But it means you have dense populations living on an environment that may not, in the end, be able to bear that. So when there's a crisis, there's a lot of people at risk. Of course, in the Arctic, among hunter-gatherers, there's similar risks, but they're not to do with large numbers of people uh, crowding on uh, a limited environment so much as 
the possibility that animals won't turn up when they're expected yeah. to or there's some environmental glitch mm-hmm. that's to do with forces completely outside mm-hmm. their control. Which makes the relocation a lot simpler, I suppose. Yeah, it makes relocation a lot simpler. Yeah. Also, hunter-gatherers, generally speaking, are very determined not to have lots of children. They keep the, 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 the number of children down. They space their children much more than, than agriculturalists. Mm-hmm. So the population tends to have a lower ceiling and uh, oh, they also keep their needs down. They don't want to have a lot of stuff. They don't want to accumulate surplus because mobility is crucial. You don't want to be carrying tons of yeah. stuff around with you when you go from one part of your territory yeah. to another. Makes me think of when I went to Newtok in Alaska in 2013, which has been dubbed sort of America's first climate refugees, this place where the permafrost is melting and now a lot of Inuit people, Yupik uh, people, sorry, are looking to have to move away from their village but it felt like they're caught between these two paradigms in one way they still had this mentality of you know well we'll just go somewhere else but Mm. they're now looking at a kind of 500 million dollar relocation because they have all this infrastructure that they and and the power lines and the sewage treatment system and all the rest of it that now needs to be shifted as well yeah it suddenly looks like a very cumbersome way to live rather than it's a very cumbersome way to live and it's a very risky way to live Mm. probably and i think this this the, the cumbersome and risky life of the agriculturist also has a kind of psychosocial dimension that's to do with the way people treat one another. And that just as people are very controlling and manipulative in relation to the land, they have to change it, get in control of it, and then defend it against the dangers that they create by being farmers, they also are controlling towards one another and tend to be quite much more belligerent, much more interested in, in open aggression, mm-hmm. much, much, well, much more inclined to go in for warfare, much more authoritarian in their relationship with their children. Hunter-gatherers avoid conflict. The wise person is the person who moves away if there's trouble. If at all possible, they don't have any kind of warfare they won't risk casualties, mm-hmm. and they're very, very permissive towards their children. The children are the authorities on what they want, and therefore they are respected and given an extraordinary by our standards, extraordinary freedoms. Yeah, Which feel almost important. I mean, having having a one-year-old myself, re- reading that section of your book, it feels almost even were you to want to allow that amount of permissiveness within the sort of environment that we live in, it feels almost impossible now. Yes, it was, it was, that's how it seems. And certainly mm. I had small children not long after I was back from my first long stint in the Arctic. And I, I'm thinking, how, how, can I, how can I be towards these children as the Inuit showed me was the best way of being towards children? And it seemed incredibly difficult. But then, you know, you think about the Inuit children. I would watch children pick up knives um, and play with them. And nobody would rush over and say, oh, be careful, be careful. They yeah. would just watch them. Yeah. And let the child play with the knife. Yeah. Or children playing on the ice. They go and play on the ice. In the spring, the ice is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. They go out there, and all my instincts would be to, would be to call out and say, hey, no, 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 come back, come back. It's incredibly dangerous what you're doing. But no, they don't do that. They let them play, and they might say, don't go too far that way. Or there might be some general mm-hmm. instruction, but there isn't an anxious, mm-hmm. controlling relationship towards the children. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, there's allow the children, and if, if there's a crisis, if there's a real danger, then of course you must do something. But we begin with, ang- I noticed myself, I, begin, I began with an anxious, controlling relationship to the yeah. child, which I then have to kind of work on. Yeah. Whereas the Inuit have to do the opposite. They begin with a completely permissive <laughs> relationship with the children, which they have to then yeah. pull in a bit. Because, because I guess you were raised by anxious parents in your turn, and that's just the culture that we, that right. we come from. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I, I wonder, I mean, that's something that, that's really interesting to me. So you, so you went there as... One of these really interesting distinctions that you make to me is flipping this idea of what it means to be nomadic on its head. Mm-hmm. So whilst we think of these hunter-gatherers as, as, as the nomadic people and, and the farmers or ourselves as the settled people, uh, in fact, it's totally the other way around. And it's, it's the farmers which have travelled the globe. It's the city dwellers that have gone to the moon. It's, yeah. uh, whereas these hunter-gatherers have been 
broadly on the same lands for, for millennia. Yeah, and, that, and they are, hunter-gatherers are committed to being on their one mm. piece of land because it's, a, it, it's an economy that depends on their knowledge of a very, mm. of a very specific environment, a encyclopedic detailed knowledge of a specific environment that isn't very transferable. If you know all about your place, and you know enough to be able to predict when the fish are going to arrive where, or when the animals are going to move where, or where the birds are going to be, um, you can't take that to another environment. It's your place that you know. And it's, it goes back to this basic divide between those who seek to control and those who respect a thing for what it is. What it is is what matters to the hunter-gatherers, isn't it? Agriculturists, on the other hand, are always needing more land. Mm -hmm. They have, they have lots of children, they overpopulate. It's a very successful way of producing um, food because it supports a lot of children. So they, their large population produces surplus population and that population then has to go out and find more land and it does the same thing somewhere else. So it's intrinsically, it's me intrinsically colonial as a, as a system. And of course that's the story of well, the Indo-European languages they took a few thousand years to get from somewhere in the Middle East, somewhere in, on the Euphrates, to the Orkney Islands. Exactly the same system is moving, moving, moving mm. across the, the, the world, transforming the world, uh, imposing its cultures, its way of life, its languages on everything and everyone they find, always on the move. And then the move across, the leap across the Atlantic, and Columbus heading towards the West Indies, and the everybody heading towards the Americas. It's part of the same inherent colonial migratory nomadic pattern mm. of the farmers. If you look at hunter-gatherers, it's the very thing they don't ever want to do. Yeah, and, and the way you talk about it is uh, it's, it's the best possible place for them and, and there is no kind of thinking that somewhere... It, yeah. the, the nomadic idea seems to map onto this idea of kind of perpetual dissatisfaction That's as right. well with, yep. with where you are. That's right. Did, did that come through for you, turning up as feeling kind of... What, what did they make of you as, as someone that wasn't happy, presumably, where you came from and, and were looking for, for something they, The in people in the Arctic when I was there in the early 70s were well used to white men turning up. Um, but they were missionaries, traders, policemen, government officials. What they were not used to was someone who turned up just to turn up. Mm -hmm. And... The fact that I came without any project right, that was to do with changing them. Everyone else, the missionaries, the traders, the policemen, are there to some extent, often to a very large extent, to change the people. They've come saying, well, I love you, but I want you to be different. Mm -hmm. And I want you to take me in and look after me so as I can make you into another kind of person. And the Inuit were very, very aware that that was the relationship and felt... Um, intimidated by the power and the authority of these white people and, and actually quite deeply resentful of this idea that they, the Inuit, never really knew what was right. There was someone else knew what was right. And I arrived, I arrived without any agenda. I had no interest in changing anybody. I was a, I was a child. I, I said, I know nothing. You've got to teach me how to be an adult. I mean, how do I speak? I can speak your language. How do I? I couldn't dress myself. I mm. didn't know anything. And so they took it upon themselves to show me everything. And I think that that was a source of a lot of fun and some deep satisfaction. For many of the Inuit I knew, the older people, they'd never ha had someone turn up from the South who just wanted to be taught. And they seized on it. They loved it. Mm. And it's, it, is, it, it was completely wonderful for me. It was like being able to begin life again. I could be reparented. I could go through the formative stages of childhood. But without the anxiety. Without the anxiety, without having the terrific disadvantage of being a child. <laughs> I remember once an, a, the main, my main teacher, who became my kind of adoptive father, called Anaviapik. Anaviapik once said to me, I must have been there for a year, a year and a half, he said to me, why do you think we've spent so much time teaching you? And I said, mm. partly as a joke, because it makes you laugh. And because I, <laughs> I, 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 it, the thing, this is a, a language in which, let me give you some examples. Ujuk is soup, 
Ujuk is a large species of seal. Ushuk is a penis. Uchuk is to try and do something. And Utuk is a vagina. Now, <laughs> the potential for making absolutely hilarious, uh, you know, mistakes, for creating the completely fantastically you know, mad sentences is great, great. So, uh, people used to fall about laughing when I was learning. <laughs> Just with a lot of tears running down their face. So I made these uh, massive, mis wonderful mistakes. So I said, well, you taught me because it made you laugh. I mean, what, what was a lot of fun. And he said, well, it was, it was always fun. But he said, no, we taught you because you're going to represent us. Mm -hmm. We want a representative. And it was very moving. On the one hand, yeah, they had reversed the Claudio relationship. But now I could become a that sort of agent, yeah, the agent in the south, which is really what you have done, isn't it? This is what I have done, yeah. It feels like because even with sort of, I don't know, anthropologists now or backpackers going taking part in ayahuasca ceremonies, or if it, in so many ways, it feels like it's just another way of of taking now, doesn't it? it yeah. There's a sort of a pretense of understanding of culture, but it still feels like one side's getting a lot more out of it than the other side. Yeah, Whereas right. you really have become an agent in 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 the land rights work that you've done, in the books that you've written, in the yeah. talks that you've given. And perhaps especially in the films. Mm -hmm. When Granada TV came along in 1974 and said, would I be willing to do one of their Disappearing World series, be the anthropologist on an episode in that remarkable, incredible anthropology on TV venture. And well, I was very, very reluctant. I said, no, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. I mean, the people won't want to be you know, subjected to cameras and be exoticized and and they, and they said well go and ask them so i went, went next time i was in the arctic was shortly after i had that meeting with granada i went talked to Navyapik and his family and some other elders and said well what, what do you think about this tv idea and they said yes right away i mean i was completely wrong i uh, i misjudged them they they, they had no hesitation and they said but we have some conditions one is we want the government to see it whatever we we may we want the government to see it and we'll choose what's in the film. So right away they saw here's another way in which I could be their agent. I could carry the, the story, the grievances, the fears to, to those who, who have the power. I'm Adam Weymouth and you're listening to Spoken Air. Today I'm in conversation with Hugh Brody. Do you want to just begin by explaining a little bit what, what land claims are and, and, yeah, and what's course, been happening yeah. in Canada yep. and, and other places as well? I guess the, so the Inuit life for so many indigenous people, they found themselves at the receiving end of a very, very aggressive colonial ideology. Even though the white people they met, especially the Inuit, people loved the Inuit, the white people they met were always very nice to them and appreciative of them, and the Inuit were very helpful towards the visitors, the ideology that was being carried to the north was very aggressive and asserted, in effect, that the Inuit had no rights to their land. This land was government land, crown land. Mm -hmm. The crown, the crown, Elizabeth, Elizabeth as they call her in London, somehow or other, owned all their land. And the Canadian government, uh, somehow, in some connection to her, would manage it. So they, they found themselves, in a theoretical way, completely dispossessed. In practice, it didn't make any difference because they went on living their life on their land at first. And this is the starting point for all land claims, I think. This aggressive ideological claim on the part of the newcomers to everything. And the... Land claims are the fight back against mm -hmm. that. I mean, Canada has led the way, though, in the possibility of land claims. So the government acknowledged in the 1970s that there was a case to be answered, that, that organisations representing the Inuit or Indigenous people across Canada should be given the funds in order to explain what their right to their lands might be and, if necessary, bring that to the courts certainly bring it to the negotiating table. So Prime Minister Trudeau threw open Canada for a new kind of 
settlement, kind of a, a administrative and legal settlement that uh, unfolded through the 80s and 90s and continues to unfold. And in 1974, very early in this story of the renegotiation of many parts of Canada, the Inuit began a mapping project whereby they created a set of maps for every part of the Arctic that would show everything they did. And I was in charge of running this project for the Eastern Arctic, so the villages I knew. And an enormous, enormous area for an area the size of Scotland. And we went to each hunter, trapper, fisherman, berry picker, and asked them to show us on a map every place they'd ever picked, each of the three different kinds of berries they picked, where they'd fish all the different kinds of fish. We had lists of every mammal they might have hunted for. We asked them to make a map for the hunting of every single mammal. Mm -hmm. And then we combined then these maps that would show the co collective use of the land by an entire community. At the same time, we got people to do ecological maps, so they would show us the movements of the migrations of the caribou, the relationship between narwhals and killer whales, where the walruses come at different times of the year, bird nesting sites, fish spawning systems. So we made sort of ethnozoological maps as well, which showed that not only did they use all this enormous area, uh, almost every last square yard of it, but they knew how their system worked. So it, 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 extraordinary, absolutely fascinating detail. So the Inuit I worked with, for example, in one community, drew a map which showed all the cracks that form in the ice each spring, and predictable ice cracks, and how different mammals, sea mammals, use these cracks to move into safe places to escape their predators, and how this creates the hunting opportunities for the Inuit. So they had a a whole ecological model in which they located themselves as the hunters. Absolutely fantastic. And that, but if you put all these maps together, then how could anybody say this is not their land? Mm. They've used, occupied it, known it for generations and generations. They also made maps of all their ancient village sites, and even maps of the people who were there before them, their village sites going back probably five, six thousand years. All passed down through oral culture. Yeah, oral culture, yeah. So that map making, I think, was the strongest piece of, uh, of advocacy that I was involved in on behalf of, of the Inuit and became the basis for their claim to the north in which due course became Nunavut, a new territory. So they won recognition of their territory as theirs, as their jurisdiction in uh, about 2000. And what has that meant, do you think, in terms of how people feel about the land that they live on? I think that as a result of the land claims process, any suggestion that this land belonged to anyone other than the Inuit who were there was gone. I mean, there was no, no possible, possible basis that anyone would recognise for the, col the colonists' claims to the land. Um, so in, at a fairly profound ideological level, I think land claims transformed how people could understand their own reality. However, they did have to cut deals all the time with the government of Canada, which meant acknowledging that the Crown had certain rights and they were dependent on the government for funding, for building of infrastructure, provision of certain kinds of expertise. So it's not a straightforward business, in fact, the resolution of land claims. And for many of the Inuit who live in the communities of the far north, life is very grim, very hard. The hunting system has atrophied. Uh, cultural change, the ideological invasions from the south, the confinement of people to standard houses in standard communities, 
often without the means or without the confidence or perhaps without the knowledge to go out onto the land and live mm. the life that they would say defines them and their heritage. And on top of that, of course, global warming, climate change has meant that a lot of travel on the land has become more uncertain or dangerous than it ever been before. And having had that sort of loss of culture over a period of time, is, is that the reason now that people are not going out on the land so much, apart, besides the global warming? And yeah, the loss it, of culture. I think the loss of culture and the bringing of an educational system. Mm. You put kids in school, age six, keep them in school most of the year until they're 15, 16. In a way, that breaks cultural continuity mm. to a very large extent or creates very severe threats. And many kids, by the time they're teen, in their late teens, don't think of themselves as able to take on journeys on the land mm. or only, they feel able only to do very mm. minimal and simple ones. But the idea they could set out on a hunting trip and they don't know how long they're going to be away mm. for, that they're going to be living in snow houses or is very daunting to many young people. Yeah. And, if they, and once they lose confidence in themselves as, as Inuit on the land, hunters, then they're trapped. Mm. Because they're in a very isolated place. Um, when you're a hunter and you're in your community in the north, you're at the centre of your world. You're at the centre of the world. Everything else is far away. That your land is your extended extended central home territory if you don't go on that land and you live in a as it were modern little house with tv and the internet then you're not at the center you're at a remote margin you're at the edge of where everything mm. you you are consuming comes from which of course is media and information and cultural values mm. they're all coming from very very far away so you feel instead of feeling at the center you feel at the edge and you feel trapped at that edge mm -hmm. and it's a disaster for many many young people. I suppose I wonder if that land reform and that that having that idea of, of that land being belonging to the to the people again do, does that have the possibilities at the beginning to turn something around? Mm. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of Scotland and and which I know better and I, I understand it's a totally different concept there there it's mm many times an island or a large area of land which is owned by one landlord and then mm. it's the tenants which are living on that land be they crofters or people that just happen to live on that land mm. which are getting the land back but especially on the islands that's really starting to change how people think about where mm. they live and it's starting to make people believe that they can have families there again starting yeah. to take control of the economy and how power is generated and, and all these things there is that way you say it there's a sense of maybe being a centre of that land again, they're not just a kind of far-flung island with poor internet connection, but there's a, there's a pride in living there. Yeah. Although that is more of a kind of farmer mentality, perhaps mm. it's more of a, this is now my bit where I can build my house. No, I think there is a yeah, very, very similar set of possibilities for Inuit and, and many other Indigenous peoples that, lie, that consist in, in re-establishing their activities on the land and their relation to the land and sustaining the knowledge. I and mean, the knowledge is not gone. I mean, the Inuit in the high Arctic still speak Inuktitut, they still speak their language. Mm. And many of them are bilingual. All the young people would say, well, I was surprised that they said to me that they were happier speaking English than Inuktitut. They thought that Inuktitut was not any good. But I Because it's not modern they, or it's not... They don't, they, they, don't, they don't have a proper vocabulary. Uh -huh. They say... They're criticised by their elders for not knowing all kinds of terms. And, but in fact, they speak it as their first language. Uh -huh. So the language is there. Their knowledge transmission is possible. And there were, were young people who, like those you were talking about in the Coffs in Scotland, who were re-establishing themselves as Inuit on their territories, on their land, and going out there hunting. So mm. there's a lot, a lot of hunting happening. Mm. Uh, and that uh, and many uh, elders and Quite a few young people too say that is their way forward, that has to be their way forward. This is Spoken Earth. Today I'm in conversation with the anthropologist Hugh Brody.
the, the reverence for what is in the mind of those people, all linked to knowledge and the receiving of knowledge by mystical by mystical means and as well as by being on the land and hearing about how animals lived and how people traveled on the land all that is being is carried to young people and the young people who are concerned to recover from the disasters of modernity look to those stories songs and knowledge as the basis for health so much of that is about respect it's about how we respect the land is how we respect the animals and you know so many of those stories the stories that I heard about the salmon when I was going down the Yukon the, the importance of respecting them it feels quite irrational to, yeah. to to my mind but it becomes more and more apparent doesn't it as, as time goes on that that having lost respect for animals having lost respect for plants there, there are very concrete repercussions of that That's which right. we're now seeing. The word respect appears more so often, as you must have heard on the Yukon, everywhere I've worked, Canadian North and also other parts of the world, respect is what people refer to, the need for respect, yes, for the animals, for the land, but also for one another and, the, and for elders. Because this is a total system of knowledge and understanding of knowledge and use of knowledge, which can only work if that which you know is in place. The fish have to keep returning. And many in, uh, stories from the North Pacific coast where I made a couple of films, um, many people there talked about how failing to respect the fish will mean the fish won't come back. Mm -hmm. The fish will only come back because you respect them. Yeah. It's a relationship. You have a relationship that, that is the, which means that the, the, the animal or the creature that you depend on in some way also depends on you. The fish come back to you to be killed. And anyway, when they uh, killed the seal, when I was working in, especially in the South Hudson's Bay, I was very struck by if they killed the seal, or particularly if they killed the small whale, they would immediately make an offering of fresh water into the mouth of the animal. The freshly killed animal would be given water as a sign that you were going taking care of it. And although you killed it, you were caring for it. And because of that, the other seals or whales would come back to you, agreeing to be killed. Yeah. So it's kind of a contract. Hunters are always living in a world where you're a sort of complicated metaphysical contract between yourself and mm. the things you depend on. And in order to maintain what you were saying before about the potato farmers that are constantly changing their worlds, yeah. the hunters are constantly maintaining, maintaining it. Maintaining it, that's right, yeah. And so how do they now, and as you were saying before we started talking, this is, they're almost on another frontier now, the frontier of, of climate change. These are yeah. the places which are, how do they see a world that's changing outside of their control? The, 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 the climate change in the high Arctic is very alarming to people, very, very visible. You can, there are travel routes that, you know, that are now not safe. There are times of year, early winter and late spring, where before you could travel on the ice with care. Now you really can't trust it's going to be safe, so it's better not to do it, or most people would definitely not do it. So that gives you a feeling that the land is not... You, the land as you need it to be, but there's nothing you can do about that. And it's a very deeply troubling mm. matter for the Inuit. The Inuit will point to the foot of a glacier and say, do you remember, they say to me, do you remember when you were here, that glacier filled the whole valley? Now it's only half of it. These very clear indicators that it's changing, and it's changing in ways that are not, make it less safe, less reliable, less knowable. Uh, 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 very, very difficult for, for northern hunters, for northern people. And does that start to change your world for you as well? If, if that respect is starting to not maintain the land, does that, does that change how people think about how they need to act on the land? Well, I think it confirms those who are feeling defeated by the colonial process. Yeah. And it makes those who are determined to resist that 
more politically engaged, more wanting to be part of the world, making that argument. Mm. Very striking that Greenlanders have led the way in the argument about uh, arguments for recognition of uh, global warming and climate change. Mm -hmm. Many Greenlanders have got onto the world stage to make the argument. And I was, when I was, I was in the Arctic, in the Canadian Arctic this summer, I was struck by how many people wanted to be making the argument. But now they also know that they know a lot about the world now. Yeah. They're no longer isolated, uneducated people. They are in our terms. They're educated in their terms and in our terms. Yeah. And they know that uh, it's very, very difficult to get those in power to acknowledge how serious this problem is and how radical the steps to change it have to be. Mm. Yeah, in many ways, Indigenous people seem a feature of every UN conference on climate change that I've been to now. This. And they are saying, we can t teach you something, yeah. which is about respect. You have to respect the natural world. Mm. You have to do what you can to keep it in its mm. place. You have to abandon your uh, tendency to attack, transform, control, and yield to a, a completely different mm. sort of relationship. But in that kind of bureaucratic UN setting, that sort of way of speaking can seem almost childish, can't it? Or naive, or, or yeah, mm, it can, it can, and and I don't know how you address that other than to explain that this is not childlike, on the contrary, mm. it is the most sophisticated, mm. perhaps one of the most sophisticated ways of being mm. a human being. Because they can often seem a kind of naivety of what we can learn from tribal mm. people, can't they? And, 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 you, and you see a lot of kind of new agey talk mm. about very, very trite things that we can, that we can learn from people. Mm. What you get across so well is, is the complexity of, 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 of really seeing the world in, in, a, in a different mm. contemporary yeah. way. There are so many people who long for open spaces, the wild. So many people have a strong hunch something very badly is going wrong. That we intellectually, morally, philosophically have got it wrong somewhere. It's very widely uh, felt. No one perhaps knows quite what to do with that set of feelings mm. within the constraints and the very, very overwhelming realities of our kind of politics and mm. economics but the inside many many people there's a there's a germ of a hunter-gatherer mm. many i'm always hearing it and the sense that the rationality that your bureaucrats are committed to or that capitalist economics is so brilliantly committed to the rationality of planning profit making employing, exploiting, that rationality is questionable. And it's not the totality of the human mind. It's not even the best necessarily the best expression of the human mind. And that if you spend time with many indigenous peoples, you find that they are indeed very rational. They're just as rational as anybody else. But alongside that rationality, there's something else, which is the, which they call dreaming, or we would call intuition, they call uh, listening to the ancestors that we might call spirituality. Um, and when they make decisions, what struck me again and again when being with people who are having to make complex decisions in the, hunter, in the hunting routine, in the routines of hunting life, that they would combine a fantastic amount of knowledge and rationality with an extraordinary readiness to allow intuition in. So the Dunleads are, for example, in northern British Columbia, when they had to make difficult decisions about a hunt, would tell stories, share information, and then they would expect to dream. That the night that followed all the conversations and the storytelling, they would expect to have a dream in which they would be shown what they should do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a remarkable use of the capacity of human beings to be something more than rational. And we all know that if you've got to make a really difficult decision in life, rationality won't do it for you. That's what a difficult decision is. A difficult yeah. decision is one where you, if, if rationality would deliver it, you would have your decision. Yeah. You can't make a decision about love, marriage, 
career, the really big difficult decisions, you're tormented, you lie, uh, agonized about it, you, we all know that in the end the decision is not made by mm. the assembly of reasoned uh, factors, but it's made by some flash of insight. Although it doesn't stop us trying to do that. It doesn't stop us trying to do it because we don't trust yeah. the dreaming. Yeah. And, and, think, and indigenous people do trust the dreaming. And, it's, and I think a great mistake that's often made when talking about uh, indigenous people is to dichotomize the rational and the non-rational. We are the rational, they are the non-rational. Mm. In fact, the, the real human achievement is to combine the two. Yeah. So you bring all your knowledge to bear in your dream. And all those dichotomies you talk about, how that's been very much the the role of the the, the colonialists has has been to dichotomize the world between the good and the bad, and the ones that own land and the ones yeah. that don't, and and that's Rational. a very good way to come in and, and control. Yeah, but perhaps yeah. not a very good way to think our way out of the problems that we're it's now definitely in. Definitely not. And of course, the dichotomy also says that this is the modern and that is the ancient. Mm. This is the relevant. That is the Quaint, lovely, irrelevant. This is the way forward, and this is a cul-de-sac. Dichotomizing goes on all the time. Indigenous people are consigned to some kind of hopeless, futureless, perhaps very sweet, but irrelevant place. It's completely wrong-headed. And the more that we're told, you know, we're constantly told in the media at the moment that the country is split or... and. Yeah. It just doesn't seem to really get us anywhere, does it? The, right, the, but, but, but this this thing that you talk about, the law of yeah. the excluded middle, mm. that, that we like to see that there's no, there is no middle ground, there is no compromise, there yeah. is no irrational way of finding a solution. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's increasingly making us stuck. Yeah. Just imagine if Theresa May had said the minute she came to power, she became prime minister and had to deal with Brexit, she said, listen, this whole Brexit thing is not the normal, rational problem that we have to face. And it cannot be reduced to party politics. It divides everybody, it divides the country, it divides people, in, it divides families. So let's acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. So we'll have a process in which there won't be any such thing as party politics. That everybody will just vote the way they think. We won't have any whip votes. We'll treat the House of Commons as a debating chamber in which just imagine how she would now be celebrated as a woman of extraordinary yeah. uh, statesmanlike uh, powers. And let's do the vote tomorrow so you can go home and have some dreams first and then come back and uh, yeah. see what you think. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're stretching things to try and see the one together of potentialities uh, being brought into mm. the House of Commons. But there is something crazy about the insistence on highly rationalistic, highly decotomized mm. ways of proceeding when there is a really difficult decision to be made. Yeah. I'm Adam Weymouth and this is Spoken Earth. Today I'm speaking to Hugh Brodie, the anthropologist, writer, professor and filmmaker. You've been incredibly immersed in this culture in a way that, mm -hmm. that most people are never going to have a chance to be. Do you miss it? Back in my mind there is always a sort of parallel life and I often realise when I'm looking at landscape, especially if it's a beautiful countryside, beautiful agricultural countryside, suddenly a kind of lens appears between me and the countryside on which is inscribed real land. It is not uh, manicured into uh, its beauty by agriculturalists. Mm. Not to deny the beauty of that landscape, but it's, it's somewhere in me there's, there's a, a longing for the Alternative, the alternative that is, well, I don't really like the word wild, but it is, is untransformed. That is, that is a world that people can be in and use and live from by keeping it in its proper natural state. And How that creates a sort of sadness in your, uh, or just a nostalgia for somewhere else? Um, it just, but it's a sort of longing, I think. Mm. A sort of longing which I think I share probably with many, many other people. I mean, mm. People who haven't been lucky enough to live in hunter-gatherer in or indigenous societies for a long period, but a, lo a longing for, for the land. The people's relationship to the sea is interesting. How people love the sea. 
feeling of relief when they're on a beach. Because mm -hmm. when you move on to a beach and look out at the sea, you've left the world that is transformed by human uh, rationalistic mm -hmm. and agricultural projects into a place where it's just the land. And in somewhere like England, that's perhaps the only place we can go and see that. Yeah, it's one of the few places that, I, that we think we see it in the Highlands of Scotland. And Until you learn the history. Until you know the history, yeah. Yes, yeah. since, since I read about the deforestation in Scotland, I find yeah. it very hard now to walk around these, what I used to think were beautiful barren hills. Yeah, exactly uh, the same. I mean, and not, as you say, have that lens, is, which is, this should all be old-growth forest. Yeah, exactly that same experience. I went to a lecture once about the Highlands of Scotland and that... That did them for me. When <laughs> uh, I fly to Canada, um, especially if you take the northern route, fly to the west coast of Canada, those flights go up across Iceland and then cut across Greenland and then ride across Baffin Island and over the Canadian northern tundra. And I look out of the window and I, I mean, part of me is just, it's as if I'm, I'm an addict who's getting my Mm. my dose you know yeah it's it's deeply deeply satisfying and thrilling and especially going over the the northern the northern the barren lands of northern canada i look down and there's thousands and thousands of thousands of lakes and riverways and, and i realize that for every bit of this for somebody is named with a name for every little lake every stream every hill has got a name in somebody's has had a name in somebody's language, has had a place in someone's system of life. It completely thrills me. So it does, it's not that I look down and think, oh, this is wonderful wilderness. Yeah. I, I look down and think, this is a world of cultures with, 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 with encyclopedias of, of information available. If only we could get back to them or to them for all of it, all of it, known and used. And that is the deep, that gives me the profoundest sense of excitement. Yeah. I, I'm interested, you said you'd gone back to Pond Inlet mm. recently, we talked a bit about that, but I just, going back, what, 40, 45 years later? Well, because I went back to Northern British Columbia after 35 years and mm. back to the Arctic after 45 years. And I wonder what you took away from those experiences, in part how these places have changed, but I suppose you must have changed a lot as well. You were starting at the very beginning of your career and you've now been writing for 40 years. Yeah. What, what sort of thoughts have you come away with? Well, when I went back to Northern British Columbia, I found myself reeling at what I was hearing. When I lived there, uh, there were two in, the, in, in, in 1978, 81, I spent about three years living in a community called Halfway, Halfway River Reserve. It was I was the only outsider in the community. There was no vehicles there. Well, there was one vehicle. Then I for a while had a vehicle. People lived on foot and on horseback. They lived in the bush. They hunted and trapped. They lived a, very much a hunter hunter gatherer life. They were having to cope with all kinds of change. But it was on the land in this rather well, beautiful non-Christian, very egalitarian life, committed to respecting the environment. The two boys in the family where I lived, called Ronnie and Marshall, they were about 10 and 13 when I first met them, or maybe 9 and 12, something like that, 12 and 15 when I'd last seen them, and they always hung around me, they always, wherever, wherever I went, they went, they, they, I was kind of their entertainment, this is a world without televisions or even radios and books, I was their entertainment, the so if, if I went out, they would encourage me to go on riding outings, and they would come on behind me on horses and make my horse bolt, and if I wrote my notes in the evening, they'd come and look over my shoulder and jog my elbow, and I was, and they were, they were good fun, and they were the children of the of the family that I knew best. I hadn't been back for thirty five years. I arrived back at the halfway river reserve. I'm arriving, and there's a bit of a grass area where not yet arrived, where, you can, where the road turns a corner and sort of verge, and there, sitting on the verge, with some people looked there, they come out of a an old book about you know, the Indians of the West, sort of battered figures with hats, just sitting there timelessly at the side of the road. And I stop, go up to them, say who I am, they turn out to be Ronnie and Marshall. 
it was, I mean, I could not believe that they were still waiting for me, they were waiting for me. <laughs> I was incredibly moved, and it was really as though something that I could never understand was at work here. And they told me they'd only just come to the road about 10 minutes before I drove up. They sat down, and one of them had woken up thinking something that was going to happen that day that was going to be important to him. So it was as if they were waiting for me. They, 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 nobody knew I was coming. It was completely uh, un, un, unforetold my coming, though somehow they knew. Uh, and it was always like that when I lived there. People always seemed to know things they couldn't possibly know. That was a right story. So that was amazing. So I spent the day with them, and they separately told me that their stories of what happened to them in the last many decades. And the stories were filled with tragedy, suicides, addiction, loss, grief, I mean, tragedy upon tragedy. And how much hardship they had gone through. Uh, and yet they still had, now they're middle-aged men, not boys anymore, but they still had a kind of humour, they still teased me, and they'd always teased me. Uh, there they were, still them, after what will probably turn out to one of the most gruelling periods in, for indigenous people this last three decades. It's been a particularly terrible period globally. So what I was seeing was a microcosm of a global brutality and disaster and transformation. To the end of it, that they were still at the side of the road waiting for me, still laughing. So both themselves and not themselves. An incredibly complex marital to contemplate and emotionally fantastically complicated to deal with. And I showed them films. We had screenings of films I'd made. Okay. In Pondon, North Baffin, Ireland, yeah. So the film, of course, is, that's, that, on the film, there it, there it is, how it all was and yeah. how it was all so wonderful. And it turned out that in, 19, in 1981, I'd made a film in Northern British Columbia that was really a community film, just for the community. Some people had said to me, why... Why don't you make a film? You're going, to, you're going to write reports about and write books, but no, none of us will ever read anything you ever write. But if you make a film, that'll be something we could have. So I, I got some funds together and some volunteers, and we made a very simple community film. Just living, just went to the hunting camp where I was living at that time. We spent a couple of weeks filming and a kind of political meeting, and we strung it together. Pretty amateurish job, 25-minute community film. And then we get in 1981. I gave them some copies of this VHS copies. Right. When I got back, it turned out that they watched this film all the time. There isn't. I don't think there's a week that goes by where someone hasn't watched it. Everybody I saw told me that they watched this film. Including people far too young to be in it. Yeah. And people, there's a line in the film where someone calls something out to me, sort of teasingly in the film, though I'm not. Visible, but they turn around on a horse. They're riding a, a line of horses out, and someone turns around and says, "You come behind, Hugh Brody. We're not going to wait for you." Someone shouts out to me in English, and that's in the film. And, and wherever I went in the studio, people called out, "We're not going to wait for you, Hugh Brody." <laughs> so this film is part of that. This film is their is their um, access to a life that they now idealise. You realise the power, the power of of that time, the meaning of that time. Well, what is the meaning of that time? Some of it's because you need to think about a time that is without all the grief and losses. But, but much more importantly, I'm sure more importantly, at that time they lived with the relationship to their land and resources and one another that they now think is appropriate and right. And that relationship is what we all need to think is appropriate and right. It's respectful and caring of the land and on the whole, it's respectful and caring of one another. And that's what we have to achieve, I guess, isn't it? You've been listening to Spoken Earth, a Lacuna magazine production. Edited and produced by Uli Matson. Music by Uli Matson performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. Next time, I'll be in conversation with Professor Anna Lohenhaupt Singh about her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening.